0: Non diclofenac. No-, <laughs> no.
1: Where? They, they can't be far away because we're, we're hearing the banging of the pipes. Well, here's one a f- floor above. The
0: floor?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, God, I hate the dentist.
2: <laughs> welcome to fall, everyone. It's finally fall. And welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am when I try to get those automatic faucets in the airport to recognize that I exist, do you guys have this trouble that I have? I, I know it. Have you ever seen the, the, the third episode, the third season of Fargo? I haven't seen Fargo. Oh,
1: it's really great. I it, heard it's great. It's really great. But the, 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 the protagonist has that same phenomenon of like... They don't, they don't recognize I exist. They don't recognize anywhere. that she exists. And yeah. she feels like that in her, in her professional and personal life as I well. I take it personally. Yeah. I do.
0: That's funny, because the same thing happens to me, but only with the towels.
2: The towels? Yeah. That they won't
0: dispense? Yeah, the, 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 the faucets dispense oh, fine. Oh,
2: oh, the automatic the dispenser automatic st- of towels, yeah.
0: don't know.
1: Yeah, for some reason. It has <laughs> something to do with vampirism. October 31st is coming up. We'll have to find out what
2: happens to Don. <laughs> we will. We definitely will. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health here at the BU School of Public Health, and I am in the studio, with, as always, with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Only and, from the Department of Global Health only from the Department of Global Health. And uh, as always, we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So as I mentioned, it is now fall. The weather is changing. Things are getting colder. It's that time of year when you want to make a fire and curl up with a good book. I don't know about you guys. I rather curl up with a good website. Mm. I like to curl up with the Population Health Exchange website. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have been to this, but no, it's never, really, never heard of it. It's fact. one of those really good fall websites that you want to you go to and have a look around. It's like pumpkin spice latte of it's, public health. It's the pumpkin spice latte of public health. And you can go there and you can find all kinds of public health <laughs> tools and videos and courses and things. I think you're really going to like it. It's at www pophealthex.org. And again, you can find that this podcast here as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. Uh, we do want to take a second to remind you to go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever you guys are using. Uh, it really does help people find us. And I just want to remind people... To give us a rating, you really just have to hit that button that says five stars or whatever you want to give us. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to go onto a website or anything. And uh, If you do want to go on the website, though, and give us a, an actual uh, a review, we would love that as well. It helps people find the podcast. Good reviews or scoldings? What, whatever people want to give us, that's fine. Um, and also, good news. Uh, apparently, I noticed that if you actually search for Free Associations podcast, now we now come up above the Toronto Ra- Raptors podcast. So I'm, I'm really Ra- Raptors the or Toronto- Raptors, Raptors,
1: Raptors. It's, it's a group that's, that's
2: fond of hawks. It's not. Eagles. It's a basketball team. Oh, what? Kawhi Leonard they play
1: basketball there?
2: Yeah, they do. Anyway, that's that is it. the perfect time to say now onto the show. I they only hockey. Oh, boy.
1: Well, they wear so, hockey skates while they play basketball, apparently.
2: So oh, that's a trick. Today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a, a study that looked at a very common non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, or otherwise known as NSAIDs, uh, and cardiovascular risk. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to look at a study in nature and human behavior that looked at whether studies published in the journal Nature and Science, particularly psychological studies, uh, were able to be replicated. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, we'll get into some things that have made us laugh out loud, or Chris will help us with our group work strategies and figure out what the best approach is. So let's get into it. In segment one, as I said, we're going to get into an article that looks at the effect of, and now I, I got to remember how we all agreed to pronounce this, diclofenac? Diclofenac. Diclofenac. Diclofenic. Diclofenic. Diclofenac. We will pronounce it many different ways on this episode. I, I hadn't heard of of this drug, but you guys have. Otherwise known as Voltaren in the U.S. Voltaren sounds like uh, Voltar. Sounds like a video like game. Something Spock would take. Sounds like the thing that uh, made Tom Hanks go back to his childhood in the movie Big. Mm, or maybe one of those energy efficient cars. Uh, whatever it is. Anyway. Uh, We're going to look at the effects of diclofenac on cardiovascular risk. The study was published in the British Medical Journal, known to you out there as the BMJ. Uh, The first author was Morten Schmidt of the Department of Clinical Epidemiology at Aarhus University in Denmark. The study was titled um, Diclofenac Use and Cardiovascular Risk, Series of Nationwide Cohort Studies, I do need to say that this one, uh, we didn't choose this one because it came out in the headlines. We specifically chose this one because it was actually sent to us by the first author and asked us if we would be interested in reviewing it and uh, 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 chewing... Ripping it apart, I think, was what he said. No, he didn't say that exactly, but he <laughs> he said to have at it or something like that. Um, and so we thought we you know we thought it was of interest, and we thought we would go for it. Full disclosure: I do want to point out that uh, the folks at Aarhus University do have a relationship with us here at Boston University, and the um, some of these authors are are actually um, affiliated with our department in, in a um, adjunct or secondary capacity. Um, but I think. As we have proven before, we can rip apart our own studies. We can rip apart anybody's studies. So, Don, let me start with you. Can you uh, describe the study? Tell us what it was all about. Sure, Matt. Um, one of the interesting
0: things, and in just or sort of glancing through this, that caught my eye was that uh, the subtitle of, of the title that you just mentioned, which was this, uh, which states a series of nationwide cohort studies, and they they underscore the fact that this is 252 or 57. Cohort studies and that really caught my eye because um, that's, a, that's, a pretty big, that's a pretty big series of studies. But as I as we get into it and as I describe the methodology, which I thought was really interesting and, and quite unique, um, it, it becomes a little bit more clear. So the the backstory on on this this particular medication is that um, after the the problem with VIOX, which was another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, um, was 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 discovered and it was re- withdrawn from the market the sort of the, the because of the idea that there are s- adverse side effects to this family of drugs is something that Needs to be looked at kind of uh, in a systematic way, and the the problem with VIAX was that they t- it tended to produce thromboembolic events, or blood clots were being thrown thrown off at a at, a, at quite high degree, and mm-hmm. and oftentimes these adverse events, though very very worrisome, can be not so common as to be able to be um, identified as a problem during the clinical trial, and these are aftermarket events that really become become a problem. So this particular NSAID. Clofenac um, is something that's, that inhibits um, in, in the process of its mechani- mechanism of action, which is to um, decrease inflammation and, and be a painkiller, um, it also can have some side effects in terms of uh, gastric upset or gastric bleeding. And we'll come back to that um, a little bit later. So EMA, which is the um, European equivalent of the FDA, called for an evaluation of the safety of this particular drug because it's one of the most common NSAIDs used throughout the world. So these authors had access to a really unique set of, uh, of data sets that they put together in a really unique way that we are, was able to address this issue without doing a long-term, prospective, randomized trial, which really wouldn't be ethical at this point, since there is a question raised about this particular adverse event. So... Um The way they approached it was that they accessed um, three large data sets in Denmark, and Denmark is one of the few places where you can do this because they've got um, universal healthcare and everybody, um, it's free for everybody to go to the doctor and they've got a very, very extensive pharmacy record system. So they basically put together a series of data sets that went all the way back to 1997 where they could match up individuals and match up prescriptions and match up visits to a healthcare
2: center. Yeah, they've got um, the Danish got amazing data.
0: Yeah, so there was the, the Danish National Patient Registry, which is all Danish hospitals and healthcare places. Danish National Prescription Registry and the Danish Civil Records. So the way they approached this was to, from this very rich data set, extract a series of short um, retrospectively. Um, collected data, but looking prospectively. So, for instance, in 1997, what they did was they looked at all of those individuals who had not filled a prescription for an NSAID for the prior 12 months, which they called the washout period, meaning that these individuals um, were, were not exposed to the, the drug of choice. And then they, they counted the number of individuals who, who filled a prescription for two other NSAIDs, um, naproxen and ibuprofen as well as the Klofenac in that month. And then they followed them for, what was it, 30 days? 30 days. 30 days looking for cardiovascular events. And then they did that every month from 1997 until 2007, I think it was. That
2: sounds right. I'll look it up while you're talking.
0: And they counted the number of exposures and the number of events that occurred during each one of those 30-day periods. So in, in essence, it's seven years or 10 years Worth of 32 month um, observation periods. And so there were some individuals who um, were um, in the trial more than once. Um, the inclusion criteria were that you had to be over 18 years of age with a one year uh, of continuous uh, prescription records prior to the study start date so they could establish whether the wash period was there. Um, And that uh, if you had, they they said one of the exclusion criteria was that if you had previous cardiovascular disease, you were excluded. But they did a subsequent analysis where they actually looked at those. Um, If you had heart failure, stroke, or any of those other um, cardiovascular events, chronic kidney disease, liver disease, use of um, digoxin, which is a medicine for congestive heart failure, alcoholism, and a bunch of other things. So there were three comparator groups consisting of active NSAID use or non-users or active non nsaid users, which is the paracetamol or um, Tylenol use. So there are three groups that they compared with the, the people that were enrolled um, uh, using uh, diclofenac. Um, this particular setup, I, I had not known this term and I had not known this kind of methodology, but it's called an, an emulator trial, and Matt, maybe you can describe a little bit about that later on. If there were dual enrollments, they had to be more than one year apart. So that if, if they enrolled me on January 1997, I couldn't be enrolled, even though they only observed me till March, say, of that year, I, had, I could only be re-enrolled um, um, one year later, because I had to have that wa- and I had to have that washout period subsequently. Um, as I said, the endpoints are major adverse cardiovascular events. Um, and their approach to the analysis was a Cox proportional hazard, and they said intention to treat. Um, but I think one of the one of the strengths about this is that these were prescriptions not written, but prescriptions filled, and it's a little bit closer to reality because you know people could fill the prescription and not take the pill, but the presumption is that is that they did. They did um, subgroup analyses based on baseline risk, which they defined as having diabetes or having a um, prior cardiovascular event. And again, before I said that that portion was excluded initially, but. In a subsequent sub-analysis, they did, in fact, um, do a comparison between the group that had no risk, baseline risk, and the groups that had...
2: In other words, the effect of diclofenac compared to these other things among those with diabetes and then among those without.
0: And, and, And or those with a high baseline risk would be that prior history of stroke or cardiovascular event. Got it. Um, And then they did a whole bunch of sensitivity analyses, which I don't think we need to go in in, in depth, but they they did a lot of sort of scenario analyses of including and excluding various different populations. So they had um, about 1.37 million um, initiators of of diclofenac, 291,000 naproxen, 3.8 million people took Tylenol. 700 and, uh, and 1.3 million people um, were non-initiators. So They really were sort of the baseline control group. And the major results was that there was an increase in the adverse event rate um, for initiators of diclofenac, um, a 50% increase over those who were non-initiators. That's sort of the purest control group. There was likewise a 20% increase in the existence of adverse events in comparison to people that were taking... Um, Tylenol or ibuprofen, and a 30%, 30% increase for people that were, in comparison to people that were taking naproxen. There was also um, a 2.5-fold um, increase in upper GI bleed within the 30 days, which is a non-cardiovascular event, but obviously a very serious event and something that we've known for quite some time is that uh, is a risk for taking these kinds of of medicine. Um, and it rose to a 4.5-fold increase um, in comparison to those who um, didn't initiate any kind, of, um, any kind of these medicines. So the bottom line is that um, Diclofenac increased risk across all ba- baseline groups, meaning age, sex, and, and those baseline characteristics. And for all outcomes, I didn't go into it, but when they, when they looked at individual cardiovascular events, each one of those individually as well as collectively had an increase of risk within the 30-day period after taking this particular medicine. And the absolute risk was higher prior to well, with a prior cardiovascular history, but the relative risk, i.e., the amount that it actually increased, was the highest when compared to the people that did not have a prior cardiovascular risk. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take uh, the whatever prerogative here and i'm going to go first this time um because there's a particular thing that i want to talk about before we get into our critique of the study which is this idea of emulating a trial that don mentioned and i will just uh say up front that i'm i'm uh i, I really like this study i i thought that that the um there are some flaws that i can point to There are some things that i you know Uh, you'd love to have seen I I don't know done done better isn't the right word that that they just didn't have the data to be able to to deal with but um, this idea of emulating a trial I think is really important and I think it's a big Maybe advance isn't the right word, um, but it's just sort of a, a really impressive clarification in our thinking about observational studies that has come along in the past—I don't know, five to ten years or so—that I think is is really helping observational epidemiology. It's, a, it's an idea that's—I um, don't know where it first you know originated—but it's an idea that um, a, the group over at Harvard, Miguel Hernán and colleagues, have really been pushing, and I think it's it's um, it's so right-headed. And the idea is essentially that if we're going to do an observational study. We can, you know, we often get into these situations where we have data and therefore because we have data, we can do an analysis. And doing the analysis doesn't actually mean that we've ever defined the study question that we really want to ask. And the idea of of a of a target trial or an emulated trial is rather than just starting with the data and doing a data analysis, let's start with the study question and let's define the hypothetical randomized controlled trial that we would do if we could. We're not going to, and I'm not... We're not arguing that randomized trials are the end-all be-all, that observational studies are terrible. The observational studies are very important and have a really important role to play. But if we think about the randomized trial that we would do if we could, if there were no ethical limitations and there were no financial limitations, then we can design an observational study that mimics that randomized trial and hopefully avoids a lot of the problems that we get into when we just take data and try to analyze it. So – The idea here is that what the authors have done is that they have first designed the randomized trial that they would do, which is you have somebody who comes in with an indication for one of these drugs. You then would randomize them to one of mm, several options. Maybe you randomize them to uh, either diclofenac or uh, uh, naproxen or uh, what are the other options here? Tylenol. Uh, Tylenol or a placebo. Those might be your four options. And then they say, okay, uh, so if we were to do this as a randomized trial, we wouldn't just include everybody. We would define who the population is that we think this is relevant to, and we would map that out, and we would have very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, then we would define our, our our interventions, we would define our outcomes, and we'd define when follow-up time starts for each person, when randomization would occur, and how long we're going to follow people and what we're going to follow them for. And if we do that in our observational study, it helps us clarify that we are actually answering the question that we think we are. And that's what I think is, is um, you know, a, a novel isn't the right word here. They didn't come up with this idea, but it's an application of a of a – what shouldn't be a novel idea, but I think is, I don't think we see this nearly as much as we should. And I think this is going to help us avoid a lot of problems going forward. The other thing is, you know, in a randomized trial, you think about this, we don't, uh, we would never start with people who are already exposed to whatever our intervention is, right? We start, um, I don't mean to imply that you couldn't have had the exposure already. You could you could have had this study without a washout period, but the intervention starts at the point at which we start the intervention, Whereas in observational studies, we might start when people have already had the exposure for decades, in which case they may have already had the exposure and the outcome and dropped out of the population. All these things that could go wrong when we start with incident exposures um, are avoided if we think clearly about these emulated trials. So I, I, I to me, that's a really um, uh, novel addition to this particular analysis.
0: Do you think it, it can be applied in settings where there isn't the um, richness of the data available on a
2: nationwide basis, excluding almost nobody? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think this applies only to huge data sets and I don't think this applies only to um, data sets where you have massive amount of, of confounder information to go with it. The idea here is because the idea here is not that this approach solves the problem of unmeasured confounding or random error. It solves the idea of what question am I answering, and am I really answering it correctly? You still have to have all that other information. Uh, sure, I, one thing I should have said was we start with the ideal randomized trial, and then we mimic it as best we can. We often can't, right? You know, there are things that are missing here. So, one of the critiques you would you would say about the study is there's no placebo equivalent or those in the non-starting group, those who got nothing. In the the randomized trial version, we would have some kind of a placebo to deal with the potential placebo effects, and you don't have that here. Is that a big problem? Probably not, but it's it's one of the things that's missing, and it's a compromise that you make when you go from the uh, trial version to the observational version, but at least you know that's a potential problem because you emulated the trial. Yeah, in this situation, the non-initiators didn't come into contact with the healthcare system
0: necessarily because they wanted something, they they, 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 they were seeking relief that an NSAID could provide. Yep. So in that way, there is a systematic difference
2: between them. What it means is, I don't know. Yeah, there could be this sort of placebo effect that goes on here just from getting a drug. Now, does the placebo effect affect heart attacks? Not so much. Uh, Probably not. So is it a big deal <laughs> not here? So not Is it a big deal here? Probably not. I'm just saying, you know, when you think about it, the, there are compromises that you make, and and this is one of them. Chris, I'm, what's, well, what's remi- your take?
1: I'm reminded of a, a sharp commentary from The Onion about this, where they, they reported that that a fifth of whiskey reduces the perception of heart attacks. Yes, it does. I do 50%. remember that <laughs> one. <laughs> I thought it was very yep. astute. So, and I
2: believe it asked for today— Taken, taken with uh, with whiskey, with whiskey <laughs> reduces your your, your, your memory of a heart no, attack. No, it was a cheeseburger a day <laughs> taken with an aspirin. Reduces right. your risk of heart attack.
1: Yeah, it was very very good. I uh, I also really like this study. Um, uh, I'm going to walk it back and, and, and try to contextualize this and 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 try to explain to our, our listeners why the question about diclofenac was was I think so important. So. If, if people recall, around 2000, 2002, there was a big kerfuffle in the clinical epidemiology literature about this drug called Vioxx, which was a, a compound uh, not very dissimilar to diclofenac, that was a drug made by this com- by, by Merck. Uh, and it was a, um, an alternative to ibuprofen within the family of NSAIDs. So ibuprofen is one of the first, I think it actually was the first, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, and it is a what is called a, a non-selective COX uh, enzyme inhibitor. So COX stands for cyclooxygenase, which is an enzyme that triggers a, a cascade of inflammatory responses, and there are two flavors of COX, one COX-1 and COX-2. And both of them have anti-inflammatory uh, consequences, but the COX one seems to be more related to um, inhibition of platelet aggregation, which is why aspirin, which is a mainly a you know has a powerful effect on, on COX one, um, leads to increased risk of bleeding. Um, but there is also a a, a a change in the you know the function of the stomach lining as a result of COX one inhibition, leading to gastric ulcers and gastrointestinal bleeds, and so that was a problem. So this. Led to the introduction of so called selective COX 2 inhibitors, which would, in theory, reduce your risk of having a GI bleed if you're taking non NSAIDs for, like, you know, chronic osteoarthritis for years and years and years. You're taking them every day and you want to have a risk of having an intestinal bleed. And so the COX 2 inhibitors were touted as, as being much safer. But what was not realized is that because this whole Cox physiology is so complicated and that there are pro-thrombotic and anti-thrombotic consequences to inhibiting these enzymes, that by shifting the enzyme using the Cox two drugs, you inadvertently increase the risk of heart attack, even while supposedly decreasing the risk of gastrointestinal side effects. And so there were a lot of politics around that, and there was a lot of mud slung, and there was possibly some corporate you know, conflict of interest Stuff going on that sort of delayed the you know perception of this you know that identification of this risk, but the net result was that Vioxx was irredeemably tarnished and had to be removed from the market. Even after initially getting a black box warning, then it was just like off the market entirely. And subsequently, other COX two inhibitors have been removed from the U.S. market. And the only one that remains, I think, is Celecoxib, Celebrex, mm. um, and which somehow escaped this um, you know being associated with having ideal you know, in theory, the same consequence. Now, the thing is that all of these drugs basically work the same way. So you would think if Vioxx had this side effect, then so would Rufacopsib or uh, and so would all, you know, Celebrex, and um, and possibly so would diclofenac, which is not, technically speaking, a COX-2 inhibitor, a selective COX-2 inhibitor. But unlike ibuprofen, which is totally indiscriminate in, in, in inhibiting COX-1 and COX-2, Diclofenac inhibits COX-2 at a ratio of 20 to 1 versus COX-1. Okay. So it is, it is very similar to Vioxx. Mm. And so this okay. raised the question of like since this one is technically not a COX-2 inhibitor but is kind of like a backdoor COX-2 inhibitor, should we have the same concerns about it increasing cardiovascular risk as Vioxx did? And, and what, what this study is, is showing is that that, that concern is, is absolutely on the mark. You know, assuming that we take the results at face value, that, you know, if, if this hypothesis that COX-2 inhibition leads to prothrombotic events and therefore cardiovascular your risk goes up, this, these are the kind of results that one would, would expect to see. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I found that, that, that you know, it, it comes from a very strong scientific premise that we would think that this probably should be true and the results are entirely consistent with the truth. And the fact that they use this, this rather clever methodology, I think, you know, adds further justification. So with that I I will just want to emphasize that you know this approach this emulated trials or the use of propensity scores to match your subjects is is, is very clever but it does not technically resolve some of the mm-hmm. li- you know limitations of of sure. a of a observational study I mean we 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 still have imperfect measurements so we have measurement error
2: and Which specifically what variables are you concerned about because I was thinking about this as well are you worried that they're underdiagnosing or overdiagnosing heart conditions or that They're getting the drugs wrong? Well,
1: no, I was thinking more—well, that's one possibility. But I was thinking more in terms of of the covariates that are going into this model. Those would have to be measured. So, like, whenever we measure covariates, we, you know, are you a smoker— you know, people say yes or no. People have different interpretations of what it means to be a smoker. Yep. Like, I only yeah, yeah. smoke a pack a day. I'm not a smoker. I mean, that's that. <laughs> there is that kind of logic that goes on. Sure, you know, sure. You I, I only smoke a pack a day on weekends, so I'm not a smoker.
2: Well, and they wouldn't have even had the smoking information right. Let's if that's relevant. So that, you know, that is a general
1: is. limitation. The other thing, of course, is that it, it does nothing for hidden confounders. So... That, Un- that unknown is true. or unmeasured, unknown. I would say. But I, I thought the, the the authors were very up front about this, and they talk about yeah. sort of trying to estimate the degree, the magnitude to which these hypothetical hidden confounders would have to exist in order to significantly defeat defeat the results. And sure. So I thought that was a very powerful sort of counter argument to what they recognize as an inherent limitation in their methodology. These I, are
2: the sensitivity analyses.
0: Don was referring to. Yep. Um, I'm not sure that they, that they didn't have access to some of those those baseline covariates, oh sorry, okay. am I wrong about that because you know they they had access to the the hospitalization records they had had access to the healthcare records so you know they they talk about the existence of comorbidities, they don't mention smoking, but it's entirely possible I mean, we don't know they don't well, give us any information, but
2: I'm going based on table one where they don't have any smoking information. They right. do all, have All I'm
0: saying is that they had access to a lot of health records, and it's entirely possible that the, that information could have been put in there and would have been verified by the by the physician or the healthcare worker, as opposed to recall. Right. so and, and
1: all that's true. But you know, for example, one of the comorbidities they mentioned is, is diabetes. But diabetes is not diabetes is not diabetes. Right. I mean, there is an endless spectrum of severity of diabetes, and so merely saying sure. yes or no does not necessarily match on sure. But on they that. but so, they,
2: they they had. In other words, my, my point here is they had comorbidity. They had that hospital information. They yeah. wouldn't probably have had smoking data because that would be something that would would not necessarily be in a in a medical uh, you know with a, a, a yeah it would in a in a, in a in a like an ICD ten code yeah 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 really yes. would,
1: if someone had gone to a clinic and been diagnosed they would be it diagnosed med- as a
2: smoker it's part of everybody's
0: medical history it's, it's it's sort of like a standard thing that you that you put down in every medical record that you want there
2: anyway but it would be an ICD nine code yeah that's what I mean. They would have had that's to uh, that's my understanding of where they're getting their because the smoking is a of. disease. I don't think they have the the full medical record. They've got the they've got the claims information. I, I could be wrong. Anyway, with w- with all that, I
1: I have to say that I I came away from from this article very. Much persuaded that the the diclofenac risk was uh, was probably real, and I agreed with their editorial comments in their their discussion, where they really said, "Look, you know, we have many options for treating pain, including other uh, NSAIDs, and there is no." There is no demonstrated advantage to diclofenac over ibuprofen, but the risk seems to be higher with diclofenac. So why would you use it? Mm. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that that or naproxen for that matter. What what is the what is the benefit here?
2: Are these um, are these big risks? I mean, so that the Don mentioned that the the effect sizes, the relative effect sizes, were in the neighborhood of twenty percent to fifty percent, depending on whether you were comparing to nothing or comparing to uh, one of the other active comparators. Don is now showing me his phone that he has looked up the ICD-10 code for it turns smoking. Out smoking is a disease, after all. <clears throat> <clears throat> Apologies. All right. um, Apologies. Anyway, we, we stand Don, corrected. Don is always correct. Just yep. remember that. Um, so anyway, somewhere between twenty to fifty percent, depending on what the comparison is, but in absolute terms, yeah. Are so, these? I'm just. I I want to know whether we're talking about big risks of of heart attacks related to these drugs or. We're we well, talking about small risks. We're I mean, not what talking
1: a- about about huge risks, but but I was curious about this question, and I went back to the Viox literature because they absolutely give they actually give some some absolute uh, risk data from the Viox um, example, and there the risk, you know, and they they were talking about a relative risk there that was quite similar to the relative risks that we're seeing here. It was a little bit larger for Viox. It was around four or
2: five, and here we're around two. Yeah, but we have the absolute risks here.
1: Uh, okay, great. So do you want to summarize that? Cause I was going to say that in the case of a Vioxx, it, it, increased the risk from around, you know, by around one per hundred person years, one, so per
2: one, hundred.
1: one addition, one additional heart attack per right. hundred person years,
2: which is a lot, actually. These were, I mean, the, so with the 30 day event rates here were 0.1% for diclofenac, uh, 0.07% for ibuprofen initiators, a for. Oh, I'm sorry. I read these wrong. Uh, Point 0.1 for diclofenac, point oh 0.07 for ibuprofen, oh 0.07 for naproxen, and 0.13 for paracetamol. So a point oh 0.03 and difference, point right? Oh 0.07 for NSAID. So that's
1: yeah. in a one-month window. It's for you multiply it per by per approximately ten. Three per thousand. That's three per thousand, and if we do that over for three per uh, for a hundred patient years, thousand. we're getting ten up thousand. around to the same magnitude. So it's three it's
2: ten thousand. Um, I shouldn't anyway, do public it's, math, but we're, we're comparable. Is, we're we're less than a percent. Not that I mean, obviously, this is cumulative. This you're going to take if you're going to take these over an uh, extended period. You, you're not just a once off thing. But I'm just saying these aren't these numbers are not massive right. percentages. But
1: there is no evidence that diclofenac is low. superior to paracetamol for pain sure. relief. Nor is it better than ibuprofen. Nor is it better than um, than naproxen. So why accept any additional risk unnecessarily? It's not like this is the only solution you have.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Other other concerns or or things. I mean, I I think we're all agreeing that 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 we're in uh we like this. So Chris mentioned the propensity scores, um, which Don didn't really talk about. So they, the the other thing they did here was they used this approach called propensity score matching. And propensity scores is an approach to dealing with confounding where we don't think so much about putting variables in a regression model to control the confounding. Uh, in the outcome model we actually think about trying to predict the exposure and fitting a model of the exposure itself ignoring the outcome and then we get a predicted probability of that exposure and we can use that predicted probability as something we can match on to try and balance out the confounding or we can adjust for it they didn't do that they chose to match on it um and it's 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 so striking to me the reason why people like propensity scores if you look at table one because they had uh several different comparisons here. So they had... uh, They compared diclofenac to ibuprofen to naproxen. Um, They compared diclofenac to paracetamol and diclofenac to... uh, Nothing. Nothing. And if you look at the um, diclofenac to paracetamol and diclofenac to uh, NSAIDs, which were the ones where they did the propensity score matching, their table one looks like the table one you'd see in a randomized trial. You have balance Mm. on all of these baseline factors, whereas in the active comparators of diclofenac to ibuprofen and diclofenac to naproxen. They didn't do the propensity score matching and that's where you see the big differences. So the the year of the calendar year shows this big difference in when they're enrolling people, um, differences in, in some of the comorbidities. And when you match on this, this this score, this exposure prediction score, it looks like a randomized trial. It's part of why people love it. Now, part of the argument against propensity score is it creates a false sense of confidence that this doesn't balance you on the things that you didn't measure like in a randomized trial. And so maybe we're getting this sort of false idea of a false confidence. But it does look... Impressive.
1: Mm-hmm. So the author made an argument about that, saying that the fact
2: that they were able to match on so many
1: things that they could measure uh, implies that they were probably able to match on things that they couldn't measure. And I was like, really? Is that true? Is that true, Matt? I, I no. was surprised to see that
2: asserted. So I didn't I didn't see it quite like that. That's not what I, I saw them specifically saying. Um, they did a bunch of sensitivity analyses to... to that, that would suggest that they actually did control some of the confounding because they did the sort of matching and then the 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 unma- or not the unmatched but they they sort of including different populations where you would expect the confounding to be greater and that is what they saw. See if you can find it, Chris, while I'm talking. But um, but my, but I will say this: when you control for something in in an analysis. You partly control for anything that it is, you know, that that is a cause of that particular right. Because risk factors party together. Yeah, and so you, there, there probably is some partial control, but it's not. It is not the same as controlling for what what they said
1: specifically. And I'm quoting here. It says the fairly equal distribution of measured covariates among the NSAID groups mm. increased the likelihood that unmeasured variables were also equally distributed and and i and i think that's what you're saying that risk factors party together and therefore increases the likelihood
2: is not the same as
1: controlled for balances it cuz yeah
2: and to me the the critique of the study that i th- i have two mainly which is number 1 which is uh if there's confounding by indication it's it's very hard to remove confounding by indication by which i mean if if you knew during this time that there was or you suspected during this time that there was a risk for um for increases in in cardiovascular disease you wouldn't necessarily give these drugs to the to the people who are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. But so I don't confounding, think that's,
1: by, confounding by indication. that's what I'm saying. Yes,
2: but I don't think that's true here because if that were the case, then you would actually expect that you your comparison groups would be the ones having more heart attacks, not your diclofenac group. Now, <laughs> maybe we're just downgrading the risk, and the risk is actually higher in the diclofenac groups, and so we're, we're balancing it out. But, you know, I, I, it's just curious. Well, some of their data made me
1: wonder about that, yeah. because they, they did this comparison with, with naproxen, and they found that diclofenac was significantly more likely to cause cardiovascular events than naproxen. Yep. And then they did the same comparison with paracetamol, Tylenol, yep. um, and they found that it was only a, sl- a little bit more likely, diclofenac was only a little bit more likely than Tylenol to cause cardiovascular disease, which based on the pharmacology of paracetamol, you would think that's, that is completely backwards because no one has ever said that, far, that Tylenol has anything to do with cardiovascular risk. Yeah. But the reason that people use Tylenol is very different from the reason that people use Naproxen. And they're usually using Tylenol because they're at very high risk of cardiovascular events and want to avoid NSAIDs. Yeah. And so I thought that that was a little bit of probable bias that was sort of still still nested within their data set. Yeah. that paracetamol t- is is fundamentally uh, it, it tells you something about the
0: patient.
2: So overall, I think we really liked it. Don, any 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 last comments you want to get in there?
0: No, I, the only thing that I was that, that I was going to note was that um, in the discussion they compared. Um, the event rate that they were able to pull together in comparison to the event rate of some um, randomized controlled trials. And they had a lot more events making it, you know, this particularly good um, sort of methodologic approach for events that are not that common, as Mm -hmm. you guys were describing before.
2: So a really nice study. And I I, I hope that we continue to see these emulated trials done more as we go forward. I do want to end with one question for you guys. Good job, Morton. Good job, very good job, and, th- and keep sending those those studies to us for if people want us to review them. Um, a question for you guys: This is the this study was published in the BMJ. Why in the BMJ? And I think the Lancet might do this too. Do they put spaces in between numbers instead of commas? Mm-hmm. It's British. Why, thing. why? It's a British thing. One space three hundred three space two hundred nine is one million three. What, I just can't read that. And they use dots instead of commas. And they use dots instead of commas. It's it's a problem. Anyway, moving on. And they drink warm beer. And they spell color wrong. (laughs) Moving on. All right. So in our second segment, we want to get into a study that was published in Nature Human Behavior. And it was entitled Evaluating the Replicability of Social Science Experiments in Nature and Science Between 2010 and 2015 by Colin F. Kramer and colleagues. Um, and this paper is a response to the replicability crisis that we've talked about so often on the show before that has been going on in the psych world, but also in in epidemiology as well. And the idea for this study was um, they actually looked to see whether they could pull out some of these psychological findings that have come out of the journal Nature and Science over this time period um, and to see whether or not they could replicate 21 of them. And what they found was they went and replicated these studies. They replicated them uh, as best they could based on uh, their understanding of the studies. They communicated with the authors of the studies to try and make sure that the protocols they were following were accurate representations of what was done in the first instance. Um, what they found, at least you know, as, as at least as a first cut, it was that about thirteen of the twenty-one studies that they had replicated, at least in their in initial, which means nine trials, did not. Nine, nine did not. Um, and that they found that of the ones that did replicate, uh, many of them replicated, but with smaller, effect sizes than were found in the original studies. Um, And they had a graded approach to that too. They had like a first
0: phase and a second phase. If if in the first phase, which was smaller, they found an effect in the same direction, they stopped. But in the second phase, if it didn't, then they would go on to the second phase and increase the numbers to increase the power to see if they could find an effect. So it was a sort of a two-tiered approach.
2: Yeah. And so so this wasn't just sort of a... Uh, uh, a quick and dirty job. I mean, they really—it's a lot of work. They, they gave
1: him—they gave him many bites of the apple.
2: Yeah. In other words, to try uh, to repeat their results.
1: And so, um, what do you think about this? I, I think it's—it's it's really fascinating. I thought the, um, you know, this comes on the heels of the this previous study that was published in Nature, where they looked at 100 uh, articles in the psychology literature, um, and were able only to replicate, I think, 36 percent of them. Um, so it was worse, but here they're they're looking specifically at, at you know science and nature publications, uh, psychology publications, i.e., we are looking at the top tier journals and maybe yeah. like the best of the best articles to see whether the, the issue of reprodu- you know, reproducibility is is even you know is a significant issue even at the highest ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know as you were saying, not only did they. It failed to replicate almost half of the studies. But of the ones that did replicate, the effect sizes were a lot smaller. Yeah. They like, were about three quarters the size of the, as what was originally touted. So there's two sort of, you know, it's like nested Russian dolls worth of, of bias and misrepresentation in the literature here.
2: Yeah, I I don't know if we're talking about bias... Uh, specifically here. I mean, I, I'm or not false positive sure, situation. but false yeah. positive. Yeah. I think yeah. this is more what's going on here. And so I, I suppose my question to you guys is, um, this study's made the round, and it's, it's, it's um, been debated back and forth. And, you know, it's obviously it's really concerning when, when we're finding that, you know, about half... I don't know what the number is, but, but a whole bunch of these studies that were published in these prestigious journals don't actually replicate. Um, is this a crisis... Or is this just what you'd expect when you use statistical significance as your criteria in a field where we should expect ahead of time that there are so many false positives, or is it both? Is it a crisis because we should expect that this is what's going to happen?
0: Or, 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 or is it is it, a, is it a manifestation of this particular kind of research in this mm. particular kind of science because you know behavioral science c- has got you know is behavioral um, behavior really in humans is is such a complex process and to be able to to narrow it down and isolate the the input and look for an outcome i think is is really difficult in this setting as opposed to something you know certainly physics or natural, natural science, but, or, or, or with respect to other aspects of biology or physiology, I, mm-hmm. I, I think we know more about all the inputs and all of the, the factors that are associated with it. And this is a tough area. This is just a really tough area.
2: So my first thought when I saw this was, tw- they, so there are 21 studies and they're going to go and replicate these studies. So I'm, I'm envisioning our work. How would you do this? You need a lot of money. And a you'd lot You need of people. massive amounts of money, right? So did you, did you, I assume you guys read the 200-page appendix. No, no, I, I'm,
1: I'm sorry. I only got to page 140. I, I What does the rest of it say? I don't
2: really know if it's 200 pages, but this very long I appendix— ran out, I ran out of paper. Well, the appendix gives the study questions that they were replicating, and you start to understand how they can replicate them. So, for example, just the first one I'll read you—I'll uh, read you a couple of them. But participants that evaluate a resume while using a heavier clipboard will rate the resume as better overall compared to participants that evaluate resume— using a lighter clipboard. What? No, exactly. God. So I start, my first thought is that was published in nature and science, Huh. but, but what? obviously we could, we could replicate like, I mean, what was we, the hypothesis in that one? That the heavier clipboard makes you an angry, a weightier candidate. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, the probability of maintaining uh, cultural diversity increases with group size. So I don't know how you, how that was actually set up. um, Priming analytic thinking via images of the thinker releases increases religious disbelief compared to viewing control images of a visually similar artwork. Didn't we cover that in one of our wild and wacky sessions? I'm just—we may I mean, have a lot,
1: of, a lot of these. Seems like a lot of permutations on the Cuddy experiment with power posing. I mean, it doesn't they're all they're, they all seem kind of cut from the same cloth? There.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, so some of them are not. Hand washing will significantly reduce the need to justify one's choice by increasing. The perceived difference between alternatives. You have your people wash their hands before making choices. I, My point here is twofold. Number one, you can do this because... These are things that are are easy. And I, I, I don't I don't want to misstate this. It's not that they're easy to come up with and design, but but you know you, you wouldn't need a ton of money to do this, is what I'm saying. And it's it's and and you probably also don't do these with massive numbers of people, and you can get some you know undergrad students to do this. Whereas it's very different from what we tend to talk about in in epidemiology. My second point is there are a lot of these things that my prior on these, and I'm That's not nice. a psychologist, so fair enough. I, I you know my 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 skepticism might be might be particularly high, but my prior on these would have been, I don't believe this yeah. ahead of time. And so if you show me some evidence that suggests that this is happening, you know, that you find a, uh, a an effect, yeah, that's interesting, but it's not going to make me believe it just because you showed it in one study. I'd want more and more right. data. And I think it reflects a problem with the science. Uh, the fact that the replications are based on, the, the studies are based on are they statistically significant? We're focused on p-values, and so are the replications. Yeah. Rather than focusing on effect sizes, precisions, and what was our prior to begin with right to draw there. reasonable conclusions, is I think the problem with the science that we have. I'm sorry to get on my soapbox.
1: They, they they talk about this. Um, one of the best parts of this article, in fact, was was the survey is, says so the the um, the Family Feud uh, data that they put in on 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 Figure number four, where they ask all these people, "What do you think? Is it likely to be true, or not likely to where be true?" Wait,
2: wait, 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 You've got to describe this Fa- in more so detail. So Family Feud
1: is that, that silly TV show, the game show, where it's not whether you know the right answer, but whether you come up with the answer that people think is the right answer, which not, might not be right, but it's what people think, Right. Uh- you so you know and but that that is in a way sort of like a bayesian analysis it's like what is the popular wisdom you know so here they they I surveyed not <laughs> an <analogy. laughs> they 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 surveyed they, survey, okay. they survey anyway, these expert experts the field the, the market research and they say like basically yeah, like how likely do you think this is to be true and the the ones that failed yeah. to replicate all cluster on the left of like people would have thought a priori without seeing the data. This isn't but the is the hypothesis is not, is it can't possibly be true. Exactly. So it's like the common sense, it sounds crazy. And and indeed the ones that sounded crazy were all the ones that failed to replicate. Yeah. It is just like there you go. So it, it it's I think it was very empowering because it means that your opinion,
2: your reasoned opinion matters a lot this is this is the bayesian approach right if we start off skeptical and we see some data that shows us something it's interesting it should you know you prick up your ears, You're but it doesn't curious. mean you change your mind based on one finding. That could just be the odd finding. You want more information, and that I think is the problem here. I thought that the betting markets that they set up, where they let people actually bet on whether or not these things would replicate, is the most fascinating part. And I yeah, threw I this agree. idea out there on on Twitter at one point of could we do this in epidemiology? And I got a lot of negatives on that, not because people, I don't think people think it could be done. There's how would we set up a, a betting market and replication doesn't work the same in epidemiology. So fair enough, but I. I still think we could do this and I think it would mm-hmm. be so valuable. Don, any 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 comments you want to add before we? No,
0: I, th- I think you guys pretty I much have
2: covered it. Our, our, our I thought co- it was a cool study, but I, I think it highlights more of the problems with the field than it does um, you know, the fact that things just don't replicate. You know, yeah, they're...
0: I mean, I think it goes back to, I think what you've said in the past, Chris, that extraordinary findings or extraordinary yeah. hypotheses require extraordinarily strong um, statistics and, and 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 data to be able to actually make you disbelieve what's common sense. Yeah, absolutely true.
2: I, I, the other ahead. thing I would yeah. say is, so they've got this this nice uh, figure of the original effect and then the, the replication effect sort of side by side. And if you look at the confidence intervals around these things, some of the ones that didn't replicate, it's not that they found no effect. They just didn't find an effect that was large enough to be statistically significant with the sample size that they had. Now, that may mean, in fact, there is no effect, and that probably is But doesn't rule true, it out. But it doesn't rule it out either. And right. I think that's the problem is that the focus here is on significance as opposed to estimation. Yeah. What is the effect size? And how precisely did we measure it? And I think that's the, you know, one of the problems here is this this focus on statistical significance, is is so problematic. It's yeah. so dangerous. I, I'm, yeah. I'm,
1: I'm I'm totally coming around to you, to your church, man. I'm so happy. Uh, I <laughs> Me yeah, too. I, and I think I think we just got to like, you know, this this p value nonsense has just got to stop. Should we take the it's I will not use p
2: values stop. pledge?
1: <laughs> I think we should stop using p values. I, I think they I've they are not helping us. Um, I don't know what would happen next if we did, but. Lots
0: the way of it is right now is cookie. Yeah, you know, and, it's, and, and yeah, it's, it's just not binary, which which is what the p-value implicates. It's a dichotomous disservice. Well, the p-value yeah.
2: doesn't. The, the comparing it to 0.05 does. But anyway. Anyway. All right. Well, let's move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing and Abusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. A look at the weird and wacky things that happen in our field, as well as those things that inspire us or we just really wanted to talk about chris you wanna you wanna go first this time um, yeah, I would love to go first.
1: Uh, there's been a lot of, of talk lately. You got about a lot of paper there, Chris. The bee colony
2: collapse is there, or is there? You're a not going of... to read through that entire paper. No, no, no right? I'm not. But all hang on, right. you're going back to the bee well. I'm going back to the bee well. He like loves the bees. we should be.
0: I love bees. You, you do. like birds go for too?
2: It.
1: Well, the thing is, like if if bees, <laughs> you like bees, bees and birds, all went <laughs> extinct, like, like the human race would would shortly follow. Yes. So bees the are in our best interest. Well, we're in the
0: midst of an insect collapse. Did you read about that? I did, I mean, that's and it's really a, scary. It's
1: really scary, and bees are insects. I know. It's I like know. it goes around. So this was a really interesting uh, paper that gets that. It was. It's called glyphosate perturbs the gut microbiota of honeybees, which brings together a lot of my my interests mm. in microbiomes and bees. Okay. All in one. The
2: bee gut microbiome. Right. I like so it. The
1: microbiome. So like, what is Wait, people are going to give?
2: Bees, uh, the poop pill? <laughs> they get. They actually... By the way, can they, I just interrupt did. you? Can I interrupt they you? They do. <laughs> uh, <But> the, <laughs> the poop pill episode has gone above 1,000 no, downloads. seriously. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's our, that's our, our, our most downloaded episode. Wow. wow. That's, that says something about, depressing about our audience. About <laughs> audience. <laughs> that's that our really worried, actually. <laughs>
1: Go. <laughs> something funny about that. Sorry. Um, so there's a, there is a, a popular uh, insecticide called glyph- glyphosate. And it is... Is that Roundup? It's a weed killer. It's Roundup? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. I don't, no. I don't think I it don't is. Know. No. I don't think I don't think, so. think it is. Because Roundup Roundup kills like everything. Yeah. Um, this is designed that it only kills some things. And mm-hmm. it's the, the touted advantage of glyphosate as a weed killer is that uh, it targets an enzyme that's found in plants that is not present in animals including bees, and so it should be non-toxic to insects, and so that's its selling point. But the thing is that bees are more complex than just the bee. The bee has a colony of bacteria living in its intestine. It turns out the intestinal microbiome of the bee is very important to its health. It affects its reproduction, and it affects its ability to resist uh, pathogens. And so what they were curious about is, like, if you treat honeybees with glyphosate, what does that do to their microbiome? And it turns out that it severely perturbs the microbiome of bees in such a way that it eliminates a protective, um, ba- a protective species of bacterium, uh, which is called uh, Snodgrassella, mm. which I think is named after snodgrass, which must be some flowering snodgrass. plant that bees like to eat on.
2: Okay. You, you know,
1: I, I bet it's a source of pollen. Let's go with that. Anyway, snod Gricella. So snod Gricella is is pretty much wiped out by the exposure to um, glyphosate, and when you then expose the bees whose microbiomes have been have been sort of perturbed by glyphosate to a pathogen that comes, kills bees. And one of the the common bacteria that kills bees is, is serratia marcescens. Did you know that? Don? I did not. So serratia is
2: a, <laughs> he didn't even look at me to ask. It doesn't <laughs> so I just know. cause
1: <laughs> urinary tract infections in humans. It yeah. also causes, kills bees. Bee killer. So if you, if you expose a bee to um, glyphosate at, doesn't seem to have any impact. Okay. If you take a bee who has no intestinal microbiota because they have been born in sterile and they don't they have no bacteria in their gut and you expose it to glyphosate, nothing happens. And if you expose a if you then transplant um, a microbiome into the bee and expose to glyphosate, nothing happens. But if you add serratia marcescens to this, the, the bee's survival drops from around 90% at t- 9 days to around 10% at 9 days. Wow,
0: that's a big effect. And it
1: basically yeah. wipes them out. Jeez. And so they're saying that, that we are fooling ourselves in thinking that this glyphosate is, is neutral, that it has no impact on the insects, when in fact there is a secondary hit because it's actually wiping out the, it's de- perturbing the microbiome of the bee intestines in a way that actually kills the bees indirectly. So we need to make
2: really small bee poop pills. Small bee poop pills, yep. I think, by the way, our crack research team, Leslie, has uh, looked it up. And I think glypho- glypho- what is it? glyphosate is, in fact, Roundup. Is it? I think so. Do we, we have com- one, version of Roundup. one Roundup. version of Roundup? All
1: right, Leslie, so there we know. So Ooh, glyphosate right. is so Roundup.
2: So I was correct twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let yeah it be now. one episode.
0: Let it be so now. So don't spray one it on your bees, whatever yeah. you do.
2: How about the bees' knees? All right.
0: You put it on the base. All ladies. right, I'm
2: gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go second. I'm gonna let Don go last All this right. time. So uh, mine it comes from a story that goes back to uh, 2007, and I will just go on record right now as saying I believe this is a hoax. I don't believe this is real, but it amused me so much. So I, this is, I this thought is I would fake wacky. I thought I would report it anyway because it just amused me. But this is supposedly a story from the China Daily from 2007 by uh, li Hongyang, yang and the title of the article in the newspaper is lancet restaurant gives medical professionals food for thought <laughs> and it says a barbecue outlet in beijing has become a favorite dining place for the capital scientific fraternity uh so it goes so on and so forth. Under the rules of the restaurant, scientists, medical professionals, and social scientists are eligible for a discount if they have recently published papers in journals that are included on an internet database such as Science Citation Index and the Social Scientists Citation Index. The paper's impact factor is multiplied by 10 to determine the discount, which can <laughs> account for as much as 30% of the bill. Seriously? I don't believe that's really no, true. that's not possible. But I find it hilarious.
0: What about if you're if you're published in one of those predatory journals?
2: Well, I you'd have to go based on the impact <laughs> factor. I mean, it, here's a question for you: If you're a predatory journal and yet your impact factor is you are you really a predatory journal? Oh, that's a very philosophical. Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. I don't think we we can deal with that. So I don't know the answer to that. But I I so somebody out there can go out and find out it's true. whether this is a true story. I've well, just looked it up in Google. Well, and, well looking at Google, map but I got it in Google. Oh, really? There's a map for how to get there, and they have a Yelp ready. But that could be <laughs> fake, too, couldn't it? It could be, but I don't think it is. Anyway, I whether it's true or not, I don't care, because I thought it was amusing. It's really great. So that's me. Don, what do you yeah. got? All right, so um,
0: I just have a, a, a very interesting short report that was published in um, the BBC a, a while ago, about three years ago. The BBC, they're everywhere. The BBC. Um, anyway, it's apparently this woman um, from Britain who um, her husband very tragically developed Parkinson's disease mm. and um, since passed away. But um, when he first developed the, the illness, and Parkinson's disease, it's important to, to understand, is a, is, a, is a disease for which we have no firm test to diagnose. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disease that's diagnosed by the presence of a constellation of signs and symptoms that a neurologist would, um, would, would elicit from somebody who has Parkinson's disease. And I think many people are familiar with it. But in any event, this woman noticed early on when he was first diagnosed that his smell changed. He smelled differently. And she brought this to the attention of a Parkinson's research group in the United Kingdom... And they thought that they should put it to a test. And what they did is they took 12 individuals who had Parkinson's disease and they made them wear a T-shirt for a day. They took that T-shirt out, put it into a bag, did the same thing with 12 people that didn't have Parkinson's disease, put it in a bag. And she got 11 out of the 12 correct. She she got them correct. By smelling the T-shirts. She correctly... Identified, identified eleven out of the twelve, and the most remarkable thing about it, and she was, she said that the twelfth, she said that the twelfth, she was absolutely sure, but the person claimed to have no symptoms whatsoever.
2: A year later, that person came down Developed. with Parkinson's <laughs>
0: disease. Wow. No, isn't
2: that amazing? So, what do they, what do they think is the the mechanism that would explain that? that, that there's just some sort of. Uh, hormonal change or something that's associated? I, with... I don't think. I mean, it, at
0: least I didn't. They haven't written a scientific article on this. Was a BBC report, okay. and they didn't really go into what it is. But they are now um, actively looking at you know various biochemical and, mm. and and other sorts of things. Wow! Isn't that amazing?
2: That's a f- that, wow! I would not have. Stay tuned, I guess. Huh? Thought yeah, there would be cool. anything like that. Okay. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, or you want to send in one of your own papers, we will take that as well. Uh, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox, or Chris at ID.Gill, or Don at dtheo one Or you can go find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast and doing research mid-show and Nick Guler for sound and editing and occasionally getting people to stop doing construction work on different floors of the building.
1: Leslie, they, since we're coming up on Halloween, I need to ask, can the undead learn? Can the undead go to the Population Health Exchange otherwise I feel, I feel we're, we're discriminating
2: website? with our website. I do not know the answer to that. We should find out. We'll find out. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.